You are listening to the Faith in Order series, hosted in collaboration with the National Council of Churches in the United States, alongside the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. This is Michael Reed Trice with the Religious Cathedral Lab at the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. And today I had the pleasure of speaking with Reverend Dr. Lloyda Martell who serves as the 18th Vice President of Academic Affairs and is the Dean of Lexington Theological Seminary, where she also serves as Professor of Constructive Theology. Dr. Martell is also a licensed doctor in veterinary medicine, as well as an ordained minister in the American Baptist Churches USA. Dr. Martell is a bicoastal Puerto Rican who has taught in various institutions of higher learning. She's pastored in New York City for 15 years and served as president of the Board of American Baptist Churches in New York City from 94 to 96. She's received a number of awards and accommodations. And today we are reflecting on the Faith and Order series and the work that she's been leading and coordinating since 2015. There's so much we're talking about in this interview including how the churches respond to racism, what's their moral theological imperative, and how are we addressing this pandemic. We're talking about cold love and complicated grief in extraordinary times. Take a listen. Dr. Martell, thank you for joining us for this podcast series on Faith and Order today. It's great to be with you, Dr. Trice. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure, and for the listener, We've worked together for years on the Faith and Order through the National Council of Churches. When did you begin in the Faith and Order? What do you recall about that first year? I began, I believe it was 2015, the then Secretary General of American Baptist Churches, who was also, I believe, the president at the time of the board of NCC, invited me as a representative of American Baptist churches to join the the board and specifically to join the table on on theological matters, because he believed that there were not sufficient people of color working on the board or in the National Council of Churches. He wanted more persons of color to express their, their perspectives. I must admit, I was very hesitant to do so because I had so many other things I was doing at the time. And my professional life, I was going through some transitions. So Mm. I was hesitant to do so. But at the time, the representative was Dr. Mark Heim, who had been my systematic professor way back when I was in MDiv in seminary. (laughs) And I had a great respect for him. So he reached out to me. Some colleagues who I had known from seminary had also reached out to me. So collectively, the body of faith convinced me, and I I heard the speaking of the Spirit, and I accepted that invitation. And I think it was a very Kairos moment, because Mm -hmm. the theme, first of all, the tables were were just reorganizing. Okay, You were part of that reorganization, of course. And we had reorganized into these smaller tables. And the theme that year, and I think that's really what made it Kairos, Mm -hmm. the theme that year was mass incarceration. So the church was speaking to the issue of mass incarceration. And just for the listener, as you reflect on that, I'd love to hear you talk more about that theme and the process and the work that was done. But when you refer to the church, are we talking about all of those churches in the NCC, or do you have something in mind in terms of the greater, you know, however disheveled you know, Christian experience in the country? When you refer to church, what are you thinking? I think in the short run, it was the churches involved in the tables and in the National Council of Churches 
but I think we later on produced a book and that book I think had resonance. I think that in the larger social ambiance, there were already having conversations about the problematic nature of mass incarceration, mm-hmm. the racist overtones to mass incarceration. And this is why I call it a Kairos time, because I, I think we were sort of just slightly ahead of the curve of a larger conversation that was beginning to be had. If you recall, Michelle Alexander's book had already been published. So there was already some wider repercussions. And I think that we sort of, to use a, a bad metaphor, I guess, we sort of rode the wave yeah. of that was coming along. But it allowed us to have some deep conversations, not at a sociological level necessarily, Mm-hmm. but at a theological and biblical level. And I'm not sure that those levels of conversations were being had in the sort of organized institutional way that we were having it. So mm-hmm. our conversations led us to go to our respective institutions. Mm-hmm. For me, my institution wasn't necessarily a church, but it was a seminary. So I was training pastors. Mm-hmm. So it allowed me to go to my seminary and talk to my students about these issues, which in turn led them to go to their respective churches. And their churches were not necessarily members of the National Council of Churches, independent churches, Pentecostal churches, interdenominational churches, as well as Baptist and Methodist and so on, to go to those churches and say, hey, we need to think about this. We need to reflect on this. We need to ask ourselves, what can we as a people of faith do about these things. So it was just a very Kairos time. There was a lot of energy about it. I'm very proud of the work Mm -hmm. that the National Council of Churches did. It wasn't just our table that did that. Mm -hmm. There were other tables that did that. There were the ecumenical advocacy days. So there was various aspects of the National Council of Churches, various aspects of different denominations that were gaining momentum and energy around this topic. And I just happened to be allowed the privilege to sort of walk into the room when these conversations were being had. Well, I remember those as you're as you're talking about it and the just the feeling of the integrity and the central importance of the conversations. And even as you're reflecting now on the interdenominational and Pentecostal and you know Protestant mainline and, and Catholic and other communities that were around the table. It felt like important theological conversation. I want to ask you, in a discussion about racism and capital punishment and injustice in the country as a theological conversation, I've never asked you this before, but there's also theological resistance to those conversations. Like that shows up, or I should say maybe ecclesial resistance as well. I don't mean that as a critique as much as it just seems to me like there was this heightened awareness that you're speaking to. Like we have to have serious conversations of theological depth on this. I don't know. That's my sense of it. What is your sense? I think that whenever the word racism comes up, there is always resistance. In part, I think, because there's fear. Mm -hmm. In part, because I think in the national psyche somewhere hidden, there's a part that says, yeah, yeah, we've done this and we haven't called ourselves to accountability. And because we haven't called ourselves to accountability, we're, we're sort of frightened of the consequences. It's brought out, it's brought out into the light. What's that going to say about us? There's a part of 
the national psyche that's built on mythology. We are always the good guys. We're always wonderful people. We've never done wrong. So to sort of burst that fallacy that maybe at some point in history, we weren't the good guys, that maybe we did do wrong and that we did a, a horrendous wrong. People are resistant to have to face that. You know, there's, and I'm not a therapist, but I would venture to say that probably therapists would say that we all have these pockets in us that when they start probing, we are resistant to that, that knowing that there's a healing in bringing those things out. There's also so much fear and guilt that we are very resistant. And I think that at a national level, there is some of that. So I think I see that whenever we start talking about anything that's related to racism. When I taught at my previous institution, I actually had a class that allowed these safe spaces to talk about these things. And there would always be this moment, just this moment in which there would be all these walls, you know, this, this almost violent reaction. No, you know, and, and I always remember this one student that said, I'm not racist. You're racist. And just yelled it out. You're racist. And, and literally split the class in half so that one half of the physical class were all the people of color and on the other half were all the white people. And I'm going, oh my gosh, how am I going to fix this? And then I thought, it's not mine to fix. And I prayed about it and I gave it space. And, and then, you know, because we created a safe space, we allow people to sort of work through that together and in dialogue. And, and eventually we saw that class come back together. And that person with pointed that finger finally as part of their final paper wrote and said, I've come to the conclusion that until I'm not free of this oppression, nobody else will be free. And I thought, yes, that's such a profound statement. Yeah. So I think that, Part of these conversations is to say to people, we're not here to accuse and attack, but to liberate. Mm -hmm. Until you're not free, we can't all be free. I remember to this point of mutual freedom that you'd shared with me, you know, we all ask ourselves what happens to these texts when they're written. And you had shared with me recently how a faculty member had reached out to you, had used this text. and had benefited greatly in the class from that text. Could you share that also with the listener? This is from that book that we wrote on mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. And the title of the book is Thinking Theologically About Mass Incarceration, mm -hmm. Biblical Foundations and Justice Imperatives. And in that book, I wrote a chapter that was titled La Nueva Encomienda, The Church's Response to Undocumented Migrants as Mass incarcerated. And my principal theme was that the very fact, this category of mass of undocumented immigrant or documented migrant has in of itself created a mass of people in this country that are mass incarcerated. They can't move. They're afraid all the time. They can't even go to a park without trembling in fear. They get sick. They don't go to hospitals, so on and so forth. And so a professor that I was inviting, it's not from my institution and who I don't know as well, I wrote to them and I was inviting them to teach a class 
And they were not able to teach a class, but it was fascinating that they wrote back to me and said, uh, you know, I've been thinking about you all year. And I and I thought, you know, you're not from my institution. And with the pandemic, it's not like we all hang out with yeah. each other. <laughs> and the email went on to say, because I was, we used your chapter in our class and it allowed for such a wonderful conversation and the students were very enriched by it. I was taken aback and I was humbled by that. One of the editors of the book, Matthew Lundberg, I remember when the book first got published and said something very similar that he had used my chapter and he was very grateful for it. I have certainly recommended this book and a lot of people have come back to me and said how helpful the book as a whole has been for them as pastors or as professors Mm -hmm. to talk about this topic. It's given them material ways to talk about these things. So I'm very moved and very was very pleased that my beginnings at the theological table, theological studies and matters of faith started with such rich conversation, such a hard conversation. Mm-hmm. You and I listened to people who dealt with with those who had been incarcerated, with people who were interned the difficulties of their lives. We listened to those stories, mm-hmm. and I was deeply moved by those stories. It shifted me. So I, I was very glad to have been part of that and continue to be part of that. These are conversations that, because we move on to a new theme, doesn't mean that these conversations I leave behind, they, they now become part of the conversations I continue to have. They have helped me shift how I think theologically mm-hmm. as a theologian. I want to ask you in a moment about what you think some of the themes Faith and Order could take on in the months and years ahead. But before that, something you said resonates with me as well. We listen to the stories in Faith and Order, perhaps at our best. We're listening to stories, we're reflecting theologically, and it seems in some ways we're mirroring this back to the churches, as you were describing a moment ago. From your years doing this now, when you ask yourself, how do we want the churches to hear this theological reflection? And maybe even to the point, what do we want them to do? Is there some sort of moral imperative? Do we want something from churches in terms of how they should respond to the major moral issues and crises that are impacting the country and the world? What do you think about that? Well, yes. I mean, I'm going to make a statement that sounds so simple. and For me, it's very profound. I think that one of the things I want people to do is to stop dehumanizing other people and to consider people as human. Mm. We need to stop calling undocumented migrants illegal aliens. We need to start seeing them as human beings and have compassion. One of the sentences in my chapter was that we need to stop lining up with our yellow buses at the borders and say, thou shalt not pass. We need to start thinking about climate change in that same way how it has damaged the land which belongs to God, how has it damaged human beings, and not just think about ourselves. Lately, I have been speaking in different forums, and I keep sharing this Bible text that always comes to me so deeply. Jesus is talking supposedly about the last days, and he says a wonderful phrase. Well, it's not so wonderful. He says, in the last days, the love of many shall grow cold. And that has always struck me because Jesus never said we will stop loving. It just says that the love of many shall grow cold. And it seems to me that a cold love is a love that becomes a very selfish love. I only think about myself. 
and those of my tribe, those who look like me, think like me, act like me. And I think that we're living in a time of cold love. We've stopped thinking about the other. People don't think anymore about public service. People now think about power. People no longer think about how can we help others. People think about profits, right? In the midst of this pandemic, where people desperately needed masks and medications and coverings, we had billionaires building rockets so we could see who was the first one who could go the highest. We've lost our humanity and we have lost sight of the humanity of other people. We've lost the capacity to be, to be empathic. We need to stop thinking about incarcerated as evil people that are being protected against because they're going to harm us, right? We need to stop looking at young African-American young man with a hoodie and assume that they're going to harm us. We need to see a, a young African-American man and see, guess what? A young man. <laughs> we have lost the capacity to see each other as human beings. And because we've lost the capacity to see each other as human beings, we've lost the capacity to deeply care about what happens to other human beings. We've lost the capacity to love hotly. Mm. And we, we only know how to love coldly. So I'm hoping that our work brings out the humanity of these topics. Right now, we're talking about racism. Mm. You know, how do we go beyond these stereotypes in which we destroy each other? How do we go beyond the power plays? I listen to the commercials of politicians and I just want to weep because they're talking about my communities. They're talking about people that I know. They're talking about my family members when they say the horrible things that they say, and they use it for points so they can get more votes. Mm -hmm. They dehumanize the other. So the work that we do helps, I hope, helps people see others, not as others, but as human beings, as nuestro hermano y nuestro hermano, as our brothers, our sisters, our, our siblings, mm. and to, to develop care and empathy, right? We're talking about climate change, for example. Yeah. I want people not to just think about climate change in terms of the science, but the fact that we're losing land. There's coastal land that's being lost. And as we're losing land, that there means millions of people who are losing their homes. Mm -hmm. And so those millions of people are seeking now shelter elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And those are the millions of people that we're saying, don't come here. We don't want you. Mm -hmm. We don't want you. But we've just destroyed their land. Mm -hmm. That there are millions of people who are now going through hunger and drought, famine and drought. Where do they turn to? So we need to begin to develop empathy. I hope this really stays with the listener, this image of cold love, because I think we should get it. Where we see damage what's injurious, the breaking apart, the inability to experience empathy or to see it even as a virtue, the things you've identified. But you also mentioned this word care. And it seems, I just wonder if you could say a little more about this. I mean, if the role of public theology, if part of the role is to help us remain embodied, like the big challenges aren't taken in abstract form. We know that. Climate change, for instance, a changing climate is one of those. And the listener may not know this, but you have 
also an article coming out in the American Baptist Quarterly on emerging diseases in a globalized world, I believe is the title, The Viral Nature of Racism, that there's something viral about cold love, perhaps. It just is like a contagion. So two questions. Is the role of theology to stand in the face of that and say, that can't be our future because it's ruinous? We know that. And second, in what way do we overcome this kind of viral aspect of our lack of empathy? As a nation and as a people, we have to undergo a metanoia, you know. I'm a Baptist preacher, so we're always talking about conversion, right? Um, and that's that's the Greek word metanoia. The Hebrew word is shuv, to turn around. We need to undergo a change in how we what we value and how we value things. There was a time in this country in which the primary value was not consumerism, right? It wasn't about buying things. Now, now we're worried about what's the big question right now at the at the minds of all of everyone, right? Supply change. Yeah. And why supply change such an issue? Because we can't buy things. I had an ordinary grandma who used to say, if you need it, if you have to borrow it, you don't need it. And if you really need it, just go ahead and buy it. It wasn't so much a consumer thing that she was trying to say. What she was really trying to say is, what do you really need? Yeah. And we have to think about what is it that we want and what is it that we need, right? And we've sort of confused that in our society. So we're people of always wanting. We want a bigger car. We want a bigger house. We want nice clothes. We want nice shoes. We want better shoes. And so we're always buying, and we turn somewhere along the line from a, an economy of consumption of sustenance to one of consumerism. And so that's part, of course, the mentality of globalism. So we, we have fed into corporations that want more and more money, more and more profits, and we sort of buy into that. So we're like, we're sort of on, on a wheel here that we can't get off of. So again, it sounds utopian, but how do we think about a divine economy, a reign of God economy, a kingdom of God economy. How do we think about an economy of care? What is it that you really need versus what is it that you want? So that's number one. Number two, we need to start thinking differently. That, that's the hardest one, right? Because again, we've gotten into this habit of we think about the other as other. And if they're other, they are enemy. And a good example is the language that's now coming out of Texas, right? Yeah. We want to declare that it's an invasion. If I'm overrun by rats, that's an invasion. Mm -hmm. I get an exterminator for that. You see how close we are to that kind of language. Yeah. These are not pests. These are human beings. Mm -hmm. And these are human beings who are running away from conditions that oftentimes we created historically mm -hmm. in their countries. So we need to find a solution and not an extermination. And we only find a solution if we think about them as human beings. These are human. What if we were in a situation in which our country was erupting in fires and there were fires from coast to coast and yeah. we needed to run away and the only place to run away was to go down south? Would we want to be treated as invaders, you know? So 
the do unto others is kind of kind of language. Yeah. So I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but for me, it goes back to that humanization. And we have to just start thinking differently and acting differently. The other day I was talking to what a student and I was reminding them of the Bible text that said, where your treasure is, there is your heart. Mm-hmm. So what are our priorities as a people of faith? I'm not talking society. I'm yeah. talking as what are our priorities? And if our priorities is to live well, then we've missed something somewhere along yep. the line, right? Because my priority is to serve God. And then everything else falls under. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, right? So what are our priorities and where is our heart? And everything else aligns with that. I mentioned this article that's coming out. You've written on the pandemic and the connection between the pandemic and many of the challenges we've already discussed just briefly, racism being one of those. What do you see as the connection between, let's say, the pandemic and the the kinds of dehumanization that you've been talking about? First, let me talk about the pandemic itself, because I think that the pandemic has created a deep grief among us. And a therapist friend of mine calls it complicated grief in extraordinary times. Mm. It's a grief upon grief through grief. And we have seen death that is extraordinary for our times. And so we're trying to deal with that. And I think that we're seeing a nation that is in such profound grief that they don't know what to do with it. And I think that a lot of the violence that we're seeing is, believe it or not, is partly an expression of that grief. Yeah. So I think that what the pandemic has done is that it has exposed a lot of the fault lines in our society. Mm -hmm. For example, just for example, it has exposed the fault line for healthcare. The healthcare in this country is atrocious. Mm-hmm. It is a what Oxfam has called Oxfam called it vaccine apartheid. I'm calling it healthcare apartheid. Mm-hmm. You have to be well off with a certain kind of financial resources to get good healthcare in this country. And we've seen that. So that healthcare and racism. Because who are the people most affected by this pandemic health-wise were communities of color, not just African-American and Latinx, Mm. which is what everybody wants to sort of go to. But we've seen it in Native reservations. A lot of the Native reservations were devastated in the early aspects of this. They lost their wisest people, the people who had contact with their oldest traditions and languages were lost to this horrendous virus. And we saw the incipient racism in that this virus was attached to a specific group. Why did we have to politicize this virus? Why did we have to call it Kung flu? Why did we have to call it, you know, why did we have to blame the Chinese? When the West Nile virus came up, we didn't blame the people in West Africa. So why this one and in this particular way? So we've seen an increase in violence against Asian Americans, right? But it's not because it's new. It was there. This pandemic just sort of opened that up. Mm -hmm. So this virus has sort of exposed the underbelly, if you will. Those things that I said earlier Mm -hmm. that we did not want to look at, this virus sort of pulled the curtain aside and began to expose all those cracks all those 
ugly parts of our society that we did not want to look at, the poor health care, the economic disparities in our society, the economic, the educational disparities in our society, the health care disparities in our society. But the other thing that this pandemic has done is that it has exposed to us the depth and the width of climate change. Yeah. Why are these viruses coming up? We want to blame the Chinese. I mean, I actually had a dental assistant whisper into my ear and say, this is a Chinese plot to destroy our economy. Right. right. Uh, yeah. No, this is oh. due to a virus that crossed the animal-human barrier. Yeah. And this is not the first time. It won't be the last time. We have been destroying habitats. We have been invading animal habitats. Mm -hmm. We have been destroying species. We have been increasing the temperature of the earth so that viruses and bacteria from the south are slowly moving up north. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've created havoc. And because we have created climate havoc, mm -hmm. we have been creating um, new species of microorganisms and or species of microorganisms that have jumped from their normal habitats into new ones, i.e. into the human population. Yeah. Or toxins that have caused mutations that have allowed for those jumpings, right? And just the other day, I have been saying that for three years, but just the other day, the New York Times published that there were some researchers that created a computer algorithm that showed exactly that. So we've known this. I didn't need a computer algorithm. We've known this for years that this has been happening. It's just accelerating because of climate change. And the other thing that's been happening is that globalization, that exploitation that I told you earlier, uh, that seeking of profits has allowed us to exploit people. And it always fascinated me that what we denigrated as undocumented migrant workers suddenly in the pandemic became essential workers. Right. Quick shift of terms, right? Based on need, right? Perceived need. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But the exploitation of people yeah. for greater profits, the exploitation of land for greater profits, the damaging of air and water and seas for greater profits, all these things are creating new or mutated microorganisms that are giving rise to newer and newer bacteria and viruses that are infecting not just humans, but we have new diseases popping up in the animal populations as well. So the bottom line is that if we don't start, as I said earlier, start thinking in new ways, start valuing things in new ways. I keep hearing the phrase from people, I just want to go back to normal. Right. But I have to tell you that if we continue in the normal, we are going to finally come to some pandemic that's going to wipe us from the face of the earth. This one, this one was horrendous. The next one will be worse. Yeah. So the issue is not to go back to normal. The issue is to find a new way of living that will indeed lead to our thriving. We have to think about the thriving of the earth so that we can also think about our thriving. For me to thrive, Everyone must thrive. And I think that the National Council of Churches is a wonderful space to think about the thriving of people, to think theologically 
And, in a, you know, what does this mean? How can the churches help think about thriving? The Bible is a great place. Jesus said, I have come to give you life, to give it abundantly. Mm-hmm. Not abundance in terms of greater profits, but abundance in terms of thriving. How can we think about thriving? Thank you so much for this time. A listener, this is Dr. Loida Martell. It's a pleasure to be with you today in the podcast. It's been wonderful to be with you, Dr. Trice, and with all of you who are listening. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center. To learn more about the National Council of Churches in the U.S., visit them at nationalcouncilofchurches.us.